Voices Family Office, Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Nikki Anani and Sitsi Mutendi. Nikki is a succession specialist. She has extensive experience in building and helping business families with succession planning. She has over a decade of family business experience in Nigeria as a second-generation family business owner and leader. In addition, she's pioneered her family office. She's the co-founder of African Family Firms, a Pan-African Association of Family Businesses. She studied economics at the University College in London and is a former accountant uh, with Deloitte. She sits on several boards of companies, including Mixta Real Estate, and ARM Harith Infrastructure Fund. CC is the founder and lead consultant at NACA Legacy Planning. She's also the co-founder at African Family Firms, a nonprofit uh, African Family Business Association. She's a well-versed, award-winning businesswoman with experience in building her own successful publishing and education businesses. She's developed a passion to assist family businesses build out multi-generational businesses, which translate into multi-generational legacies. Her main focus is working with individuals, family businesses, families of wealth, uh, with their family governance and fam- uh, governance tools is working with family offices to create relevance between the family and the family office. CZ has a certificate in family business advisory and family wealth advisory through the Family Business Education Network, uh, fam- Family Firms Institute, and is pursuing an MBA through Durham University. Today, we'll discuss several issues, including the African family business and family office landscape, best practices around working with family enterprises and how to avoid potential pitfalls. And uh, we'll also discuss the African family business and family office connectivity space. So let's get started. Maybe we'll start with Titi. How did you get your start in this space? I got started in this space three years ago after... um personal experience. So I lost my dad. And so I'm a third generation family business member. And so when my dad passed on, I had to wrap up his estate. And I think during that process, it was a real eye opener to some of the things that we overlook as entrepreneurs, as family businesses, and even as family officers, we tend to leave off the important things in our legacy building journeys for the last minute and sometimes they're left undone and our family has to wade through the waters so when I went through these waters is when I realized that I'm building my own family businesses and they're gonna face the same issues if they're not handled early and so While I was learning how to do it for myself, I started helping other people. And so the journey has just continued from there. Perfect. Thank you. Nikki, how about yourself? How did you get started in this space? Very similar to Sissy. Um, I'm a family business owner myself. I'm a second gen. Um, As you read in my bio, I was in the UK for a bit. And then I moved to Nigeria 10 years ago, started working in with my father in our family businesses and set up our family office. And it was from that insider experience, one of um, loneliness with not many advisors to help navigate the transitions we were going through, Um, not having a community of other family business owners to learn from, share with and lean on. 
And that was, and then unfortunately, a friend of mine, I watched her lose her father and his family business then completely collapsed shortly after. And so similar to Sissy, I trained up to become an advisor to work with families, helping them with navigating succession planning. Both of you have very common pathways of getting into the space. Are, are you finding that the clients that you're working with are, are facing similar issues or are you trying to work with them before they, they, they face uh, such, such things? I think most families actually come to that crossroads when they're facing difficult issues. We all like to believe that our family is perfect, we communicate perfectly, and we all get along. It's when we start facing conflict or tension that we start realizing that there's an issue there and we start wanting to try to fix it. And sometimes it's a long way down the road and it takes a lot of unraveling. Just think of it like a ball of wool that has the cat has got and it's gone all shady. But um, that's usually where a lot of families find us. And But then we found also the next gen conversation is a very interesting one because next gens are becoming more conscious of diagnosing a problem before they have to find the cure for it. Titi, let's, uh, let's talk about the history of family offices is a conversation that you and I have had uh, before today. We often cite some famous families in the West and some famous families in other parts of the world as, as origins of the first family offices. But I think we, we both uh, discussed that this goes back much further. What, what are your, some of your thoughts on, on this aspect? I think the conversation on family office is one that needs to be really revisited and we also need to look at different regions and their historical background, especially when looking at Africa. And I think that's the core basis of our conversation because we are African family firms. Um, when you think of Africa, there's so many narratives about the continent and we even when we're looking at the processes we go through in governance we look to what has been set down by our western counterparts and their experiences but when you really take that magnifying glass and really look back into the past of africa um, the origins of the continent the the different kingdoms that were there and how they grew and i think we know a lot of prolific kingdoms like Egypt, for example, and then Mansa Musa, um, I think in, in Tunisia, somewhere there. And you've got also in Southern Africa, you've got the Zulu kingdom and so forth. I mean, you've got so many kingdoms that um, were across the continent and they were successful. They did trade with Europe. They did trade with Asia. They managed to grow into quite vast kingdoms and they had to be managed in some way. And it was a family that ran it. I mean, we know the families that ran these kingdoms, just like we know the monarchies in Europe. And so family office on the continent is not a new concept. And being able to run it as something that is successful and can grow into a vast investment vehicle, albeit it's, it's quite different now, the concept is the same, the framework is the same. So getting to understand how we were successful back then and some of the lessons we can take going into the future might be something that might unlock the conversation of successful family offices on the African continent. So is there a standout there? Is there, is there a, as in, uh, in North America, we often cite Rockefeller as one of the origin 
uh, of family offices of that discussion, which, uh, as you mentioned, goes much further back in history than that. Is there, if in the African contents, is there is there a Rockefeller family that people sometimes point to to provide some context in different parts of the continent? I think the most prolific, depending on which region you're looking at, because Africa is vast, so you have different kingdoms that have been successful, but the most prolific that has everybody still remembers and has artifacts and so forth has got to be Egyptian history, the pharaohs, how they ran kingdoms, how we still have those big pyramids, the sphinx and everything in between. Um, the conversations that when even when the Romans came into Egypt, they saw an empire, they saw a dynasty, they saw a lot of things that had already been happening, and there's historical records. Um, there's you can, even walking to the pyramids themselves, you can see these hieroglyphics that are written telling the stories of how they ran their kingdoms, and I think that alone tells us that the the ability was there. Then when you look at colonial Africa. And post-colonial Africa, you have um, Ethiopia that had um, the house of Haile Selassie. And that was a prolific family that managed to have many different moving parts. And they weren't colonized because they managed to stay together and they managed to keep that family business and that country as one. So you have these very important and powerful stories that tell this narration and then you have also historic monuments like um, the great zimbabwe that's in in um, zimbabwe that uh, was built by the rojis who were prolific traders along um, the salt route which is uh, where mozambique and other countries are so there's just so many to pick from in that vein Nikkei, there's as, as there's so many places to pick from let, let's talk about today's family business landscape across the continent. Can you pick a few places to give us some top top issues and top things that you're seeing in that in that area? Hmm. So as Sissy kind of alluded to, the continent is large. Um, we have 1.4 billion people across um, this large continent, but there are some key themes across the continent, um, particularly in this post or during COVID into post-COVID world. A lot of family businesses are seeing liquidity constraints as a result of slowdown of economic activity, and there's a lot of uncertainty. So unlike in um, the West, where there's lots of government support and programs, moratoriums on loans and lots of programs to see the restarting and kickstarting of the economy, unfortunately, in a lot of the African nations, there's a lot of silence over that. And so business owners see a lot of uncertainty with regards to planning for the future. Um, across a number of the key um, economic giants on the continent, there's a lot of exchange rate risk in Nigeria, for instance, as a result of COVID, oil price tanked. And the main source of our foreign exchange is from oil and gas revenue. And as a result of that, our currency has seen a huge appreciation and continues to lose value, unfortunately, which is tough for business owners in terms of we're typically quite high import dependent nations. And in addition to that, um, a lot of business owners have dollarized, dollarized loans. So this is quite a difficult time to plan for the future. 
And linked to that is challenging times to raise finance. In spite of a lot of the negativity I've said, there's still plenty of opportunity on the continent. We have significant infrastructure deficits. In Nigeria alone, we have a $1 trillion trillion deficit in infrastructure. The continent has the most arable land in the world, and we have the youngest population with a median age of 18. So there's significant opportunity across most sectors. Health, yes. Education, yes. Resources, yes. Um, But business owners being able to take advantage of those opportunities can be a bit of a challenge because the domestic banks don't have sufficient liquidity to give long-term loans. So business owners have access to short-term loans for projects that require long-term financing. Um, Other alternatives are institutionals, but they require high levels of corporate governance or typically are looking for relatively large deals to invest in. So there's a bit of a mismatch between the deals that the business owners are incubating on one side and the deals that the finance, the capital owners are seeking to invest in. Are you seeing anybody jump into that space to try to help with that mismatch or is that it continues to be an issue? It continues to be an issue. I am seeing some more funds targeting smaller sized um, businesses, so looking at between 5 million to 10 million to 15 million um, sized investments on the continent. However, still the, the biggest players are still looking at 50 million plus deals, which in this side of the world, they're probably a handful of deals on the continent that, that meet that criteria, right? Um, so it is a challenge. I'm also seeing a lot of funds recognizing this opportunity and rolling up their sleeves and getting right to it and incubating deals themselves, setting up project development divisions, for instance, doing the feasibility studies, your um, environmental impact assessments and what have you, and so that they have deals to invest in because there is a compelling opportunity on the continent. Where the mismatch is, is the deals that are available to invest in. Titi, in terms of the areas within the continent that are seeing are seeing opportunities for, for family businesses, are you, are you seeing any areas that are really leading the charge? And kind of, as, as Nikkei mentioned, you know, kind of being the, 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 a little bit of a disruptor and, and supporting those areas. And then maybe even those family businesses that have been that are, are are at the multiple generation state. Where where have you seen some of those pockets and the families that you work with? I think one of the biggest areas that we're seeing, which has always been there, but is slowly creeping to the front and being a critical area, is in the farming space on the continent. Producing food has become um, an important factor for the globe, but not only for the continent. You have a lot more countries that are beginning to start producing food for export. You have a lot more engagement with governments leading that conversation. You'll find that beforehand it used to be in the extractive industries, but as Nikkei pointed out, those conversations are slowly beginning to become background conversations. They're slowly beginning to become conversations where 
the extractive industries are always going to be there, but how can we invest on the continent using ESG models? How can we get companies that are already there, family businesses that are already there to actively engage in ESG models? Because some of them have already been engaging uh, in ESG models, but then now to make it more apparent and be able to get the right type of funding and the right type of structure. There's a lot of industries, especially the construction industries on the continent that are growing because as a continent, we are still very much way behind our international counterparts. There's also conversations and um, industries like the transport industry. Um, we've got a lot more airlines that are being set up as well as a lot more transport companies in other areas being set up. There's still a lot of um, landmines and forgive the pun on that one, but it's it's really one of those where we you cannot connect Southern Africa to Western or Eastern Africa and Northern Africa without having to go off continent at times. And so those struggles are um, being met by family businesses that are coming into these spaces and trying to provide more. You find also waste management companies are being set up, um, companies that are focusing on handling the the climate change issues in a more safer way, in a way that is sustainable. So there is so many pockets of opportunities, so many little companies that are now beginning to take center stage because what they had been doing in the past now has to be more developed than it was. They're getting more access to conversations and funding and opportunities. But I think at the forefront is definitely our farming industries across the continent and um, the export of of food going into other regions from the continent. You mentioned impact investing and ESG as as strategies. I think many of our listeners are probably more familiar with the outside uh, coming in to to the African continent. What what are you seeing from homegrown initiatives on that front? And you gave a couple examples around waste management and other areas, but how has that space grown and, and its interest for family offices and family businesses to to look at that ESG models as, as a way of doing business? So within the African context, you find that we've always had to, at some point, especially going after our independence in most countries, we've always had to make a plan, as we call it on the continent. We try, we create uh, businesses that work and that are functional. And within that thought processes, a lot of family offices and family businesses and family enterprises tend to model their philanthropy models or their business models to support the communities which they're in and to be able to provide more jobs as well as to provide more opportunities, upskilling, as well as um, maintain an, an, an environmental status quo. And with the conversation now turning to ESG, you find that some of the things that our Western counterparts are thinking of investing in as ESG are already models that have been used and utilized on the continent. We work within our communities. We provide jobs and ecosystems that make sure that our communities benefit from it. It's something that we've always done. I think um, it's synonymous with the spirit of Ubuntu or Kama. And we have done that on a smaller scale. So 
this. Can you give for our listeners, because you give us a little bit of background on those, the two things that you just mentioned, I think that'll be helpful. All right. So let's say, for example, we have um, construction companies like um, Nikkei. I think she can give a bit of insight on how her family business um, construction family, uh, construction company also um, invests in the communities that are surrounding. But I have seen um, road construction companies that provide jobs for people within the, the the area that they're constructing. I've seen um, companies like Liquid Telcom when they started laying down the, uh, the internet and they went in and they started hiring people within the regions and along the road as they were as they were instead of bringing in other people from other regions they invested in the communities and when there is schools being built or where there's factories being built you see a lot of then clinics being built as well as housing better housing better infrastructure you see local employment goes up and then you see also when it comes to the inputs that go into the manufacturing process they're sourcing locally instead of importing. And the governments also are supporting the fact that they're bringing higher prices on imports, encouraging the local communities to start thinking of ways to start creating and building using what is already available to them. So you see, because of those things that would you normally will be prohibitive for, for a lot of other companies, We've become innovative in using what we have to be able to build. So that means creation of inventions, creation of um, ways or different um, strategies. For example, when COVID happened, um, importing the um, these machines that people were thinking of was just not happening. And people were thinking, how are we going to be able to create ventilators because if people need to go into hospital, how's this going to happen? And there's a local group that started working with um, a local university, a Harare Institute of Technology, and they created ventilators from the materials available. And then they made it possible to create DIY ventilators that they could sell at a cheaper price that didn't need to be imported and um, created jobs for those people creating them and they used local materials. So that in itself is is a scalable model if you look at it across industries that need that and that have got clientele or customers across the continent so a lot of that double bottom line and other other elements are built into what you're seeing as uh as as a normal course of business or or for a lot of these family business uh, for, for a lot of these family held businesses Yes, absolutely. And I think Nikki can share some of the work that her family does around ESG and um, promoting that. Yes, I think um, all what you said definitely resonates and is, and is really apt. Um, I would say that a lot of business owners that I come across and including ours are almost like paternalistic, um, positive um, leaders in community as well as business owners. So, for instance, when we're taking decisions in our construction business, we're thinking not only of the bottom line, but we're also thinking about the communities that we support. Um, we've had instances in the past where we've had the opportunity to use more mechanized ways of 
um, you know, doing construction, um, to have machinery, but that would displace a lot of workers. And we see our workers as part of our, our community. Um, a lot of the projects that we're incubating at the moment really speak to people, profit, planet. Um, looking at green energy projects, how can we ensure that, you know, whilst I mentioned that in Nigeria alone, we have a significant infrastructure deficit, power is a huge issue on the continent and in Nigeria as well. Um, Nigeria produces 3000 megawatts of power for a population of, 100 and, of, of 200 million people compared to South Africa, which produces 12,000 megawatts for a population of 50 million people. So it's obvious to develop the, the nation, we need to look at power. But the challenge is that as a continent, we have access to a lot of brown energy, but it's not sexy at the moment, and nor is it ethically responsible. And so we find ourselves incubating projects, looking at waste power, looking at solar energy, looking at wind energy and it, it's 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 tough to develop these projects in africa it sounds sexy but it's tough because the financiers still don't get it um there's no precedent for it and typically they're a lot more expensive um but that withstanding um a lot of business owners such as ourselves do feel a sense of responsibility to our planet um, to ensure that we're not making profit to the detriment of for something that the future generations will pay for. I think that long-term mindset is what, as family business owners, we tend to carry in our hearts, is really um, we want to leave a legacy. And we're thinking about the next generation and the generation after that, not only from a financial perspective, but also from a social perspective. So what kind of a world do we want to see and how can we shape that right now? Oh, in that vein, Nikkei, one of the things that we've talked about uh, and that you're seeing out there is this this transition of primarily embedded family offices that are embedded within the family business, um, and, and the, the the how that's that's coming about, and and, and looking at families that are setting up their own uh, full service sort of or even institutional type family offices that are separate from the family business or joining together uh, and creating multifamily offices, but a lot of them, I think, are, are, are still more along the lines of uh, commercial entities that are there. H how are you seeing that development and how is that supporting some of the, the key issues that you said are, are critical to you and, and family businesses that you work with and know? Mm, that's a great question. Um, a lot of families that I'm seeing do have embedded family offices at best. <laughs> Most are holding companies um, and, you know, they transition from holding companies to embedded family office, leveraging off the skill set of the staff they have in their family business and the advisors, their lawyers, their accountants, their estate planners around that. Um, but there's a, there's a need to transition and develop beyond that, particularly when we're looking at generational transitions. As the next gens are coming in, they're looking for something a bit more sophisticated. They're looking for ways to diversify in wealth and in the business. They're looking for deeper succession planning and family governance. And then that calls for something more sophisticated, not a single family office or an embedded family office, but really going with um, service providers that have the complements of the skills. 
The challenge we face on the continent is the dearth of the skills in the family business industry. And that's why what led me and Sissy to meet each other and, and go on this journey that we're on is that we recognize that families need more than an asset manager, in spite of the fact that a lot of asset managers are marketing themselves as family offices. And it's quite frustrating to see that because from an outsider's perspective, if one isn't well versed in this area, it's it's it, you you wouldn't know what a family office you know should have the services they should be providing and what should be at the heart of it and so many business owners get sidetracked down the wrong you know and and they have certain expectations and then they get into these um, family offices and then realize that they're quite shallow in the service um, offerings that they have um, essentially what I'm saying is for the industry to mature and for clients to have more options we need more um, advisors to come to the table to be trained up in different elements of family office services. So from managing family dynamics, conflict, wealth planning, estate planning, you know, um, financial management, law firm, we need the industry to deepen. Otherwise, most families will continue as they are doing to move their assets offshore to your financial centers, London, UAE, New York, but then the challenge is these service providers don't understand their families. They don't understand their culture. And what is the culture on the African continent? It's always a philosophical question because there's a richness to our culture and a diversity. In Nigeria alone, we have 250 tribes. We have 50% of us are Christian, 50% of us are Muslim, and 15% of us follow traditional religions. So you can see there's a Venn diagram there. A lot of us, you know, follow two religions. Um, and that's just one of the 54 countries on the continent. So we need to develop, and, and not necessarily Africans need to develop the skill set to serve the African market, but the family business industry as well needs to develop an understanding of the nuances of the African people to be able to serve them effectively. And, and you're talking about thousands of miles away for, for some of these family offices as, as you're building to this, this offshoring CC, we kind of term this a, a reversed satellite family office. Sometimes you'll have a family that will establish a, their family office in their hometown and then put a fa satellite in a financial center to gain access to markets or deals or whatever it may be for it. But you're seeing almost the opposite here. Nikkei talked about some of the reasoning behind that, but what are your thoughts on that? And do you see any chance in the near future of how to bring some of those back to there and have more homegrown versions of single family offices or traditional multifamily offices? Absolutely. I think the reasons why we, we're having this reverse situation is because of the history Africa's had, um, a very colorful history, which we can't um, ignore or undermine the power of. Um, we 
are basically our borders on the continent were created by colonialism as opposed to our natural progression as tribes and as people. And even as Nike pointed out, you find that you have different religions as well as um, different cultures. And sometimes, and most of the times we have been grouped together because of colonial boundaries as opposed to um, natural um, progression. So, with colonialism obviously came the thought process where you see African families for the longest time having sent their children off the continent to their, their Western countries where they had access to because they were colonial um, masters of the country. So you had access to these countries. You had access to go there um, pretty much as citizens to a certain extent. So we send our children out there and um, we now expect them to come back. And similarly so, because the mind frame is that what's in our colonial homeland is probably better than what we can offer here. So naturally, the progression is to set up our family offices and spaces where we feel safer, where we feel secure. But do we really truly feel that safety and that security? Or is it something that has been ingrained in us over a long period of time that we need to let go? At the same time, saying to people, bring back your family offices and set them up at home, they have to be in an environment where that is possible. Are the policies that we have in the countries that we are residing in, are they friendly for transition? Are they friendly for the development of our family office and our investment portfolios? Are we getting the best value for it? Because now you see you have countries like Singapore setting up financial hubs. You have Dubai that has got a financial hub. They are creating policies that are friendly for people to set up their family offices there. In Africa, our governments are just not there yet. And it's the work that we do through African family firms that we start conscientizing the demographic, which is the family offices and the family businesses, as well as the governments to say, we need to bring back the critical skills, which are our young people who have gone out there, have gotten the skills and know how to do this. And we also need to be able to create a friendly environment so the family offices keep their monies at home or make their home their their domicile residence for their family offices instead of seeing all the funds being channeled out of the continent into other spaces where the families are not resident because that in itself also has its own technicalities when if something happens to principles you cannot longer access those funds because in those countries, they also have their laws and regulations that can make it very unfriendly and that can change at any given point in time, given some of the, the acts and the laws that are being passed in terms of finance and in terms of knowing what is going on with movement of money globally. So these conversations have to start with us at home. We need to be able to create environments where there is the right skills to manage this money, environments where there's the right laws and legislation to protect this money for it to be attractive because no doubt any financial mind will tell you that they will go where their money is protected and where they can get the best value for that protection. Cece, you mentioned about creating some of these platforms and those conversations and, and doing some of that, but it sounds like you and Nikkei are doing doing just that with, with the work that you're doing. Talk to us about the, the methodology, Nikki, that you have with working with family offices. How, how have you specialized it and sort of differentiated it to put it into the African context? That's a really great question. 
um, that maybe I'll start with the African context and then speak about the methodology. So the key things that we see on the continent that we may not see in the Western world is firstly, polygamy is quite common um, across the continent. So, and oftentimes um, polygamous households or polygamous marriages are not necessarily legal marriages, but customary mar marriages. And as you can imagine, that can create some a lot of uncertainty when it comes to generational transition of assets and inheritance and what have you, where, for instance, just a scenario, um, if a patriarch, for instance, passes away and had several other wives that the, the first family were not aware of, upon his death, then assets could be potentially shared with the other families because they're by the the customary marriages are legal marriages right so that can create some issues another key theme we we have we see is this concept of like sissy was explaining ubuntu which is a southern african philosophy of we are a collective humanity so i am because you are and so what that essentially means is we have very strong sense of community so families have what I term as non-family family, lots of loved ones that aren't blood family members, but would potentially be beneficiaries of the family business or family wealth. And the last theme is the topic of gender, which is a complicated, it's a mixed bag. You've got patriarchal cultures, you've got matriarchal cultures, but um enshrined in a lot of the laws for instance in nigeria there are many state governments that do not allow women to inherit property or land um, and this really traces back to our colonial history when the british came in and they were quite sexist in their approach and prevented a lot of women from owning wealth um, pre-colonial history actually points to the fact that a lot of women were wealth owners they were the traders they 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 counted the, the money. Um, they had their coin, as we say in this generation, um, whereas the men were the warriors. So just thinking through those um, key themes, when one is looking at succession planning, you know, there's no, there's no um, cookie cutter approach to it. There needs to be open conversations with the founder um, where where the founder is a male, the founder could be a female. Um, where you have you build trust with the founder to really we have open conversations about the truth of the extent of this family. Who is the family? <laughs> Who is the beneficiary of this wealth? Is it just the main family, or are there others to be considered? And if there are others to be considered, are there structures we can put in place um, to ensure that they're protected as well? Um, would you want that to be communicated to the main family? Would you want that to be completely ring-fenced, right? Um, so those are the kind of conversations we find ourselves having. With respect to non-family family, again, is to plan for um, ownership of or structures, again, to cater for the non-family family. Would this be through a foundation separate for the main trust or holding company or what have you? Um, would this be in the shareholders agreements? Would this be in 
the family council documents and things. So just having explicit conversations as to how, what responsibility does a family see towards this non-family family? Who are they and what shape can this take form? And then the topic of gender, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity as I was kind of alluding to, and it's very much dependent on each family and having conversations with the patriarch, usually the patriarch as to what's his vision for the next generation and equally the next generation, what's their vision. Quite often, the page, I've come across a number of patriarchs that want to see their daughters flourish economically. But what's happened is because of a lot of societal conditioning, a lot of daughters excuse themselves from the sphere of the business and of the wealth. So we're having to do more kind of customized coaching and training with daughters because quite often there's this gender confidence gap with ladies, um, you know, even outside of the family business world and teaching them, you know, the, you know, getting them accustomed and acquainted with business and wealth matters. Um, the most impactful way one can do so is on a one-to-one basis um, where there's a lot of trust and psychological safety um, to build their confidence and equip them with the skills that they need to be successors, successors as owners of business or wealth um, or leaders, potential leaders, should they choose to opt to be in the business. Who's usually approaching you on that? Is it the fathers or is it the daughters or how, how, a combination of the both? 90% of the time I'm approached by daughters, next gens, who are worried about the future, but don't know what to do. They feel overwhelmed, overwhelmed with the magnitude of the responsibility that they know they face in the future and overwhelmed by the state of the economy with COVID and what have you. And there's a sense of urgency to do something, but they don't know what to do. Cece, maybe you can walk us through an example through a time when you worked with a family on building a family succession plan and then also look to them about how they should be thinking about their family office. I think it'd be interesting to see your perspective on, on what worked and what might have what didn't work as well as you had thought in that in that particular instance. So I think one particular family comes top of mind was um, quite a big uh, prolific family and I was approached by the next gens who actually saw an article I'd written for a local newspaper and then recommended the article to their father so the next gens contacted me and then the father then contacted me soon thereafter um, the initial conversations were indicative of that the family was complex um, in that the family was two two parts of families, um, like Nikki says, in African families, they can be rather complex. The the next gens that contacted me had a separate mother from the, the wife that was currently there. Their mother had passed on. And so they were trying to think of how they wanted to grow the family business and um, create that transition from the founder to the next gens. You had some of the next gens working within the family and uh, some who just were not working within the family, but then felt entitled to the wealth benefits of the family business. 
And so they were also very interested in then setting up a family office to be able to handle some of the complexities that they couldn't handle as a family. And so I think to them, they thought the fa they could just hand over their conflict to family office and family office will do processes as opposed to them working through um, the issues that they were having and identifying what was their common goal and also what they wanted to see at the end of the conversation. So as part of the journey that I walked with them is identifying the the history, the shared history, why they got into business, who started the business and what was the aim of that. And also the experiences as the business was being uh, built because they all had a story to share about their experiences, how they felt and um, what, they felt, what they felt the family businesses uh, brought to them as a family, as well as some of the things they believe that it took away um, for them as a family. And in that process, engaging family members that were part of the family business, as well as those that were not part of the family business, and then structuring it in a way that they understood the, the different aspects of being an owner and not being uh, an employee and the three circle model as, as we all know it. And I think at the end of um, almost two years of conversations, of structuring, of creating, of also acknowledging what was the shared values of, of the family and the shared values they wanted to pass on to the next gen, as well as looking at what succession truly meant to them. Did they want a family member to be at the head of the family office or the family businesses, or would they prefer somebody who was an outsider making decisions based on that and making decisions based on what was the shared vision they had for the future for the family and the wealth of the family and not focusing it so much on the business, but focusing on what it meant for the family and what the advantages were for the family. And I think it was a slow process because initially there was hesitancy and there was, we know what we're doing and we want to carry on the way we're doing. But then as we slowly navigated it, they realized that, yes, they were clear on some of the things they wanted to do, but then they didn't have that space where everybody could be open and share what their thoughts and their, their, their need for the future was. And also there was a conflict where the founder assumed that all his children wanted to be part of the family business and felt it was a betrayal to have family members not wanting to be part of the family business. And then also the complexity of um, the, the family didn't mourn the loss of um, the initial uh, wife of the founder and the children felt that their father moved on too fast. Although they had no animosity towards their stepmother, they just felt that um, it was taken away from them and they didn't have the opportunity to mourn. And so all these complex issues were pushing at the business, it was pushing on the performance of the business as well as their ability to work together. And it stopped them making critical investments when they needed to because there was a push and pull that was happening that had nothing to do with their investments, but more to do with uh, a private feeling of, are we doing this for us or is it for somebody else? And so being able to speak about it in, in, in an environment where they felt safe 
allowed them to realize that they actually wanted the same thing, but they just were not communicating with each other. Well, it's good that they had uh, some, some, some guidance around that because it sounds like there's a tremendous amount of complexity that probably still, still exists today with, with what's there. So to, to wrap up our conversation today, I, let, let's talk about lessons learned uh, for, for both of you. You know, back, think back to when you got started working with family offices and family businesses versus what you know now. Well, what are some of those things that you, you wish you could have had and, and known uh, back then as part of that? So, Titi, let's start with you. Things I wish I could have known would be that when you walk into a boardroom full of family members, you're walking into a landmine zone. And um, we all assume that what you are told is exactly what's on the ground. But with families, you begin to realize that there are always some underlying feelings, emotions, relationships that you need to navigate very slowly. It's not a process environment. It's very much a systems environment, understanding what is going on, why it's going on, and then being able to hold their hand and walk them through it. You are not the solution, but you are there to help them identify the best solution for them. So a little bit of trust, but verify, and then look for the, uh, look for the, uh, and, and keep the end in mind as you're part of your conversation. All right, Nikkei, on your end. Mm, I would say one is just how lonely each family member typically are and how they feel that their situation's the worst in the world and they've got the biggest cross to bear and no one understands it. And the other generation, the other family member has it easy. And um, another one is that a lot of decisions are made fueled by fear. So the founder typically has a lot of fear, fear of the future, fear of the next generation, not knowing how to move the business forward. There's a lot of shame as well. Um, And typically on the next generation side, there's a lot of fear for the future, fear that they're not good enough to take the business forward, fear that they won't be um, great stewards of the wealth. Um, I wish I'd been more clued up on these more subtle behavioral psychology aspects. Thank you both for joining today. I think you really appreciate it, Titi and Nikkei. I think there's some great, great insights here and and certainly the, the, the context provided uh, for the parts of the the world that you work in, the families you work with uh, is tremendous here. And thanks to all of you for, for listening in today. If you'd like to get in touch with our guests or you have any questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation or so inclined, subscribe to the channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. Sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space. Check out our website, that's dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Thank you.